Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. It's hard to imagine a world where we leave future generations with fewer rights and freedoms. Since the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills aimed at blocking people from getting the essential sexual and reproductive care they need, including abortion. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves access to care. And with supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. When children love learning, they can tackle any challenge life throws at them. Sylvan's insight assessment can help you determine if your child is ready for what's ahead. It can also identify gaps in learning and point out areas that could be of concern for your child so they can tackle what's to come. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. Hey, so my guest this week is Kelsey Piper. She is actually a Vox writer, part of the Future Perfect team. Um, I've been getting more interested in the kind of stuff that Kelsey covers in the world of rationalism, effective altruism, these kind of things where people try to really think through rigorously what are the most important problems in the world and why do they matter. But one I have always been stuck on is the level of interest in this community in artificial intelligence and its possible threats to humanity. Uh, so Kelsey and I have been talking for a long time about how we should sit down and talk this through. Uh, we finally, you know, put the date on the calendar, decided we should do it, uh, record the conversation uh, for everybody's benefit. I think it's really interesting. I- I'm not sure if she's totally convinced me, but, you know, there's there's a lot to learn here. So enjoy. Another episode of The Weeds on the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Matthew Iglesias. My guest today, Kelsey Piper, is a staff writer with Vox's Future Perfect. Um, welcome to the show, Kelsey. Thanks. Excited to do this. We've been talking about doing this for like a year. Yeah. So I have been, I'm very interested in the kind of areas that you work in and the sort of, you know, ideas around rationalism, effective altruism. I think, you know, there's there's some concepts that I struggle with as like, personal ethics, like I need to be better to animals and things like that. But what I don't feel like I've ever quite gotten intellectually is like, what's up with artificial intelligence? We hear that from a lot of people because, you know, effective altruism, it's like malaria nets, uh, treatment of like parasitic worms in poor children, Uh, even factory farming, you know, it's a little farther afield, but I think most people are kind of like, yeah, factory farming isn't great. I'm not proud to be part of that. And then there's a focus on future technologies that inherently is a little bit more speculative because they're future technologies. And and it has a lot of people going like, yeah, why, why is this a major global priority? Well, and also because, right, so there's a there's a difference in mode, right? Because a lot of this stuff is like, okay, just take a deep breath, right? And like really try to say, like, like what matters, right? Like, because of course, just we fight in politics all the time about like America and human beings in America and other people we know. But I think if you say to most people, just like on its face, isn't actually severe poverty in sub-Saharan Africa, like worse than whatever it is you're yelling mm-hmm. about. And they'll be like, yeah, that like that that seems that seems correct. Whereas like these science fiction 
scenarios, which I, I think we we'll get the audio. Like I, I loved uh, Terminator 2 when I was a kid. It was like my favorite movie. The Skynet funding bill is passed. The system goes online on August 4th, 1997. Human decisions are removed from strategic defense. Skynet begins to learn at a geometric rate. It becomes self-aware at 2.14 a.m. Eastern time, August 29th. In a panic, they try to pull the plug. Skynet fights back. Yes, 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 yes. yes. And this is what it's about, right? Is artificial intelligence will get out of control and pose an existential threat to humanity. Um, so when I hear that, I'm like, yeah, that's awesome. Like, I do, I do love that movie. But like, is that for real? So I don't think AI risk looks much like Terminator. And I do think that AI risk work has been sort of damaged by the fact that, yeah, there's all this crazy sci-fi where like the robots develop a deep loathing for humanity and they come with their guns and, and they shoot us all down and only one time travel, you know, that's ridiculous. And so, of course, if that's what people are thinking of when they think about the effects of AI on society, you know, they're going to be like, that's ridiculous. I do think there's like less of a divide between AI and the other areas that Future Perfect focuses on than it looks at first glance, though. Like, OK, we distribute malaria nets uh, because that stops kids from dying of malaria in sub-Saharan Africa. That's straightforward. But then we also fund malaria vaccine development. And that's a lot more speculative. That's saying, okay, the technology doesn't exist, but we think 10 years down the line, some of the technology will exist. And, you know, we have to lay the seeds now because 10 years down the line, we really want that malaria vaccine available to distribute to every person in sub-Saharan Africa, if that's what it takes. And so I think a lot of what Future Perfect does is trying to say, where's the world going? How do new emerging technologies both solve our problems and also create our problems in the case like climate change and stuff like that? And, you know, try and get a head start on what the situation is going to be 10 years from now, instead of always being sort of reactive in our addressing global problems. So then, so you said, you said that, you know, AI risk, you think, probably doesn't look like uh, these these kind of science fiction stories, which, you know, is interesting because it is so um, it's so deeply embedded, actually, in our culture. Right. Like the, the very first robot story is about robots staging a revolution and, uh, you know, taking over the world uh, by, by Carol Chapek. And uh, he had a previous work, which was about genetically engineered super salamanders um, who also do the the exact same thing and it's it's eventually you know refined so there's like clearly been this anxiety uh, like long predating modern computers that like mankind will create some kind of artificial minds that will turn against us and that we should be very very concerned about this and yet it is true that we have like blundered forward toward creating artificial intelligence <laughs> without actually in any way acting on this cultural concern that we're all sort of familiar with. I, I think because it sounds so ridiculous, right? That like, okay, the chess playing machine is like, now going to enslave me or something? Yeah, I think there's a disconnect where actual AI so far mostly does narrow, harmless things. You know, it wins video games, it writes reasonably good text, it makes deep fake videos of people singing songs they didn't sing. And there's a disconnect where it's like, how does that become a serious threat to civilization. And sci-fi solves that by saying like, oh, the robot wakes up and the robot hates us for whatever reason, or the robot wants to conquer for the reasons humans want to conquer. And that's like over 
anthropomorphizing AI, nobody who works in the field expects that to happen. Um, I think actually a better model for the reason AI is dangerous is not what if AI is a conqueror. It's more like what if AI is like Philip Morris, the cigarette company? What if it's just deployed by a company that wants to make a lot of money and it does that in a way that's socially destructive? And so I actually want to step back and sort of expand on this. Yeah. I think with every new technology, new powerful corporation, new state, there's forces that are pushing it to act in ways that are destructive for human flourishing, destructive for the planet, destructive for the global order, whatever. Um, and there are forces acting to pull it towards being conducive to human flourishing, conducive to the planet continuing to be, you know, at least intact enough we can live on it, make money on it, conducive to there being some global order that produces peace and not nuclear war. So like I start a business pumping lead into the atmosphere, making a ton of money. My business is bad for the world because lead causes brain damage. The world has various mechanisms that might make me stop. It might ban lead, it might tax lead, it might give the people who live near my factory the right to sue me for developmental delays I caused in their children. It might write outraged exposés in the press about me, which are bad for PR, investors downgrade my company, my employees and shareholders and board members have moral qualms about what I'm doing. Like none of these are perfect mechanisms, but I do something bad. And then we have various regulatory, democratic, economic things that sort of pull us back in line. And I, I might concede and stop pumping lead in the atmosphere. I might agree to a regulatory package that disadvantages me, but disadvantages my competitors even more. I might obfuscate, make it look like I stopped pumping lead into the atmosphere, but I, I'm still doing it. Or I make it look like lead is great for children's developing brains by faking some studies. We saw all those tactics with tobacco companies. They, they killed millions of people. They tried every tactic in the book to get to keep doing that. And eventually we brought them like a little bit more in line, right? So. AI is a set of powerful new technologies that do things in the world. And many of the things that they do are not by default going to be in line with human flourishing, not because they hate us, not because they're trying to kill us, not because they woke up in any sense, but they might invent products like tobacco that are profitable and addictive, but kill people. They might maximize engagement on social media platforms at the expense of the functioning of our democratic society. They might invent brilliant new financial instruments who make their inventors a ton of money, but unexpectedly destroy the whole national economy a couple of years down the line. Those are things that computer-aided decision processes are also doing right now, even though current AI is really limited, which I want to get into more later. But in this world with very limited AI, we have computer-aided decision processes that are doing things at odds with human flourishing. And we have various ways to push back. You know, the SEC can send you to jail. The government can bring an antitrust against you. People will protest you. And bad actors can do a lot of harm and it can take decades before our mechanisms for keeping them in check catch up. But fundamentally, our mechanisms for keeping them in check exist. There are forces that are bringing them in line with what humans want. And the fundamental problem of AI is that we're going to get way better at solving a wide variety of problems in new and creative ways using avenues we haven't thought about. And the solutions are, are going to be too complicated for any human to understand. AI designing drugs, and it's hard to guess their mechanism of action because they're unlike any drugs we had before. Designing financial instruments, and they're so complicated, the finance people aren't sure what they're buying and selling. AI designs PR campaigns for products, and they work really well, but the product people aren't sure why they work so well. Okay, so I, I think this is actually useful to sort of zoom in a little bit on like mm -hmm. what what is going on now with with artificial intelligence, which, you know, in some ways is a little surprising to me. Right. So it's like I have seen there's been a big um, trend lately to these 
not like super convincing deep fakes, but like they take photographs of famous people and you can have them move or even sing songs. And, and it's like, it's kind of neat. It's not super important. But what I, what I think actually like I did not realize is that the thing that makes that possible, right? That is artificial intelligence. That's, that's, that's the tool that does that work. Yes. And there's a weird thing here where like, when you talk about what AI can do, AI engineers are kind of like, we really can't do that much. You know, we spend all day like tweaking parameters to get like slight changes in performance. We can make pictures of them sing and stuff like that. So on that sort of micro scale, like minimal progress is being made maybe week to week. But if you zoom out a little bit and look at like the state of AI compared to like the state of AI five, 10 years ago, it's, it's an insane difference. It's an extraordinary difference. Like there's tons of things that 10 years ago, people were saying, maybe this is completely impossible that like now a grad student can do over a weekend. You know, I remember when I was in college, which was a while ago now, it was like 20 years ago, you know, I was in a, in a class and they were saying something about neurology. And the, the point they were making is that like the brain has like a special area to detect other human faces. So like we see human faces really, really yeah. easily. And the kind of like tossed off thing was that this is like an unsolvable AI problem. And, and that wasn't like a strong claim about AI. They were just observing that like AI could not do that. And now it totally can. Like Yes, there's been a ton of progress in that, in things like reading text and interpreting it, in things like generating text, uh, in things like, watching a scene and coming away with a summary of what happened in the scene, you just see AI able to do things that, you know, five, 10, 20 years ago, people were saying, maybe this is just completely impossible for AI. And part of the issue is that computer progress sort of, it has that, the, the compounding quality, right? Where you can work for years and years and years making progress that seems extremely incremental. So it's like, well, we've been going 30 years on this and we're just now like, what's a face and what isn't a face? But then once you get there, it's like one more year to, it can scan your whole library of photos and tell you who your cousin is, right? And like, it accelerates really, really fast. And so you can be reading a book that's only a few years old and it's like, wildly outdated. Yes, that's exactly right. And there's also commercial dynamics that contribute to accelerating it. Like when you can't even get it to identify a human face in a picture, no company is spending much of their budget on that because why would they bother? And then once it can do that, then billions of dollars and thousands of bright people are poured into making it better, figuring out what it can do next. So as AI makes progress, more resources get pointed at making that next step of progress. So you see a super non-incremental growth in AI capabilities. And, and this then becomes, I think, a difference from the tobacco case or the lead case, right? Because an issue that we're always dealing with is that, you know, people come up with some new idea, right? Like, I have this way to make the gasoline work better by, by putting lead in it. Right. And there turn out to be a lot of problems with that idea. But as terrible as like the story of lead was across 20th century industrial history, it mostly got better 
over time, right? It's like we, we developed a better understanding of the lead situation, started regulating it, started regulating it more strictly. More countries started using unleaded gasoline. We've done some cleanup um, because like the lead technology itself did not evolve faster than our capability to keep up with it. I think that is the completely key thing is, is the technology evolving faster than the resources that people have to sort of understand the technology, bring the technology in line. In the case of 20th century technologies like lead, like tobacco, there was an invention. It had lots of harmful effects, but I feel basically optimistic. As a society, we learned more. We acted on what we learned. We phased out the bad thing. We made progress. Whereas if the pace of innovation is fast enough, if we're building on new innovations much, much faster than our capacity as a society to bring them in line, to learn about them to understand what's going on and to react to it, then I think we have problems. So that's a great place to take a break. And then I want to draw a sort of philosophical distinction here. Support for The Weeds comes from Not Another Politics podcast from the Harris School of Public Policy. With the constant news cycle, there's a lot of noise out there. Opinions are plastered all over social media. Pundits are throwing out hot takes without any sort of context. And it's only getting worse as we dive farther into election season. We know that if you're listening to us at The Weeds, you're looking to cut through all this. And if you like this show, you might like Not Another Politics Podcast. Not Another Politics Podcast is produced by the University of Chicago Harris School of Public Policy. They want to take a research and data approach to analyzing hot-button issues and offer perspectives that go beyond the headlines. They cover a wide variety of topics in their episodes, but a few recent episodes that you can listen to include a deep dive into why women are underrepresented in U.S. politics or whether or not we can believe political surveys. You can listen and subscribe today at harris.uchicago.edu slash nap. That's N-A-P-P. Support for The Weeds comes from Burrow. Okay, are you ready for the understatement of the century? Buying furniture can be frustrating. You end up visiting a bunch of stores searching aimlessly for the right pieces to match your home, then spend hours trying to get those pieces together or together again if you got it wrong the first time. And that's even if you were able to get it through the door. Burrow is a furniture company that wants to make the whole thing easier. Burrow's new Dune line features a contemporary yet timeless look inspired by the craftsmanship of classic mid-century construction. If you're looking to bring a sense of luxury, comfort, and durability to your outdoor spaces, you might want to consider Burrow. Like all of Burrow's pieces, they offer easy assembly and disassembly so you can move or store them away as needed. Not only that, they ship straight to your door for free. Listeners of The Weeds can get 15% off their first order at burrow.com weeds. That's Burrow. B-U-R-R-O-W dot com slash weeds for 15% off. Burrow.com slash weeds. So part of what this points to, right, is the difference between finite harms, like even really bad ones, mm-hmm. right? It, but that are still bounded, right? Like as many people as died from tobacco, you're talking about lives cut short. But still people, heavy smokers, like grow to adulthood. They have children of their own. Plenty of people smoke heavily without dying. Like, like it's, it, it's genuinely very bad. But like no society was ever like brought to its knees by people smoking, right? Like civilization yeah. does not collapse. 
if the risk of AI were the risk that AI would invent the next tobacco, you know, that would be worth some resources to address, but it wouldn't really merit the sort of very strong terms that a lot of people put the AI thing in, which is like, we are going to lose our civilization if we don't get this right. And, and the idea is that there's a very limited list of things mm -hmm. that pose that kind of genuine existential harm. Yeah, I think that's true. There's a difference between things like lead that kill tons of people and make our civilization, you know, worse in, in various complicated ways, cause harm that we're still undoing, and things that just are, are not necessarily compatible with any kind of human future. Yeah. So, I mean, among kind of normal people, climate change seems like mm -hmm. the thing that if somebody wants to name yeah. Like a source of existential dread, right? That that's like a, a pretty kind of like normie American liberal mm -hmm. concern. Um, and your, I mean, you've written about this for Vox, right? And and your view is that that's probably wrong. That you're talking about uh, a serious but bounded set of of harms from a, a warmer climate. Yes, that's my best estimate is that climate change is going to cause probably hundreds of millions of deaths. And that's an unimaginable tragedy, obviously. Um, I think it is different than, you know, something that is incompatible with continued human civilization. And I think most people instinctively agree those are different. Like people who think that climate change is going to drive humanity extinct, you know, are tend to be endorsing much stronger measures to deal with climate change than people who think, you know, it will be bad, um, but not in that kind of way. And that seems right to me. If I thought climate change is going to drive humanity extinct, I would be in favor of, uh, you know, doing whatever it takes, banning planes and banning cars tomorrow. And maybe that causes a massive upswing in poverty, but, you know, better to live in poverty than to not have the chance to exist at all. Whereas since I think that climate change will kill a ton of people, but be survivable for civilization, I tend to be more like, okay, how do we minimize total human suffering here, which involves lots of climate mitigation, but not every possible climate mitigation that, you know, comes at too high a cost in developing countries or whatever. Right. So it's, it's a big problem, but a normal sort of balancing set of considerations. But this, though, is, again, a sort of puzzling area. Because, so if you were going to tell me that these people, you know, doodling away with machine learning to kind of make our photo apps work better and, you know, get the autofocus on stuff and, you know, we're transcribing our calls faster, that this is posing um, a potentially existential threat to humanity. Should we just, like, like shut it all down like the gains actually of machine learning and artificial intelligence well not zero obviously like there's a reason companies are investing money in this they seem almost a little trivial like wh why aren't we just like rounding up the computer scientists and you know putting them in jail smashing the machines with our crowbars like like what's what's going on here so I think this is significantly underselling the benefits of potential machine learning research. Like I think climate change probably won't kill us all, but I think as we head into the 21st century and the acceleration of technology and what it can do, I think there's going to be a lot of emerging technologies that significantly threaten our way of life and like our ability to continue as a civilization. So uh -oh. I, I, yeah, I, I think, you know, pandemics can get a lot worse than this pandemic that we've suffered through the last year. And I'm not totally sure that the world could sustain having a pandemic like this every decade anyway, let alone ones that are much worse than that. So I'm 
basically not in favor. And I don't know anybody who's in favor of like trying to hunker down, maintain like our 2021 tech level uh, and address whatever future problems come our way with that. Like, and then the other thing is just on a purely pragmatic level, if the US government announced that AI research was illegal, the AI research would happen elsewhere. Lots and lots of people are doing AI research. If there were some sort of total global agreement to slow down on AI research, I think then I would be in favor of saying, let's do only the kinds of AI research that help us understand how these computers work and help us like get results we want and slow down on, on research avenues that aren't that. But that global agreement, it's just completely unattainable. It's absolutely not going to happen. You alienate a lot of AI researchers who are otherwise broadly on board with trying to do safety and get this right. If you're like, well, we could just ban the whole thing and we can't just ban the whole thing. So I think that the answer is like, pragmatically, we can't ban the whole thing. And trying to would mostly just make sure that it is happening somewhere farther away from where we can do understandability work to make the computers like do more of what we want and less things that we don't want. And then the other part of it is like, I think that we need to make things better than they are now in order to be equipped to overcome the challenges of the next century. It makes me sad because, you know, there's just more, more good science fiction that has this <laughs> premise, right? This is in, in Dune, the Butlerian Jihad eliminates artificial intelligence and in, uh, Neuromancer, there's the Turing police who- well, It's just unrealistic, right? Well, <laughs> Especially when you've got a multi-planetary civilization, like it doesn't take that much to do AI research. And, and over time, it's gonna take less and less in the way, as computers get more powerful, like it's cheaper to do AI research, right? So you just can't have an extremely sophisticated civilization with good computers that doesn't let anybody research AI and has that kind of coordination over planets. We don't have that kind of coordination between DC and California. It, it's <laughs> well, so I, right. I mean, I think the, the, the paradigm for a lot of this stuff, you know, sort of implicitly is late 20th century, like nuclear nonproliferation, yes. which is proven to be very challenging, but more than a little effective. Uh, but the thing about nuclear weapons development is that it involves these like very large macroscopic objects that can be easily observed. Yes, you can look through a satellite and be like, hey, that looks like a nuclear weapons program. What are you doing? You know, and you can't as much do that with AI. Or now, okay, right now, building state-of-the-art machine learning systems requires a lot of resources, much less than building a nuclear bomb, but still a lot of resources uh, and a lot of computing power that only a few places have access to. But that's one of those things that is rapidly changing, right? Like computing power is getting much cheaper. Lots of people are buying extremely high-end computers, you know, if only to mine cryptocurrency. And so more and more people personally have the resources to do AI work. Uh, and that's just going to get more and more true over time. Right. I mean, computers obviously have been getting more sophisticated for a while now. That continues. Um, they are relatively small, easy to conceal. <laughs> you can build... Uh, I don't, I mean, you could just have a room full of computer equipment in a basement somewhere, like even a lot, and nobody would know. Um, so, so on an international perspective, right? Cause I do think this is important, right? If one country wanted to institute some kind of very sharp limits on digital technology program, there would be no, no good way to assure that it's not happening in China, happening in where, wherever else, right? And that that is important because obviously one of the things you can do is like work on weapons, work on 
military applications. It's not all uh, singing Fed chairs. Yes. And I, the military is very concerned with this problem. And the, there was a recent National Security Council report on AI. And the tack they sort of come down on is, we want this to happen in America and not in China. And so we should be you know, shaping immigration policy and shaping uh, technology investment policy in order to make sure that the first AI happens in the US and not in China. And you know, the Chinese government is very terrible. The Chinese Communist Party is awful. I don't want them to have AGI. But I think if you're thinking of the AI problem as just like, we need it to happen here and not in China, you're really underrating the scale of the problem. Because if it happens here and we screw it up, that doesn't save us. Right. Because that's the sort of the the, the NSC report view of it is just kind of like, well, if we're making like a better plane engine and like, yeah, and we, like want we, we want engine. the best plane engine. Right. But your the, the concern is that the point of really advanced AI is to do things that people could not do. And that means that the creators won't necessarily understand like what the computer is doing for them. Yes. And even if we ask the computer for it, a computer could be really good at coming up with new drugs and not really good at explaining in human terms, like, what all of the effects the new drugs will have, or it could be good at explaining all of the effects that the drugs will have, but not adequately incentivized to do that. Like producing an accurate report on the drugs is just not one of the things it is designed to do, even if it would be capable. So what what's the application to drug development? Because this is something you've, you've mentioned a couple of times. Yeah, cure cancer. Um, I, I've talked to researchers who are sort of gung-ho on this transformational AI development program. And one of the big things they say is like, what if we can end cancer? What if we can end aging? What if we can just and involuntary death. Like, obviously, we're getting into some pretty ambitious stuff there, but like human medicine has come a really long way. And if you can supplement that with superhuman medicine, with tools for drug development and invention that we haven't come up with yet, that's super great. And would somebody also take this and be like, develop a better cigarette? Yes, absolutely. Someone will do that. But I'm not specifically worried about the better cigarette. And I think drug development is something that we want. Uh, superhuman effort pointed out. Is this what protein folding is for? Protein folding is for drug development. Yeah. So for decades, pharmaceutical companies have been trying to figure out how to predict from a protein's like line of instructions, how it will fold. This is a super hard problem. And last year, Google's DeepMind AI department uh, blew everybody out of the water and won the competition by a mile with an AI that can predict protein folding. Um, this is going to be super useful for drug development. And by itself, you know, that's not going to change everything because there's a lot of other steps to the drug development process. But it doesn't seem implausible to me that, you know, at some point, we have AIs that can spit out a, a, a line of DNA and say, like, print this, and it will, you know, cure that person's cancer. This, this is one of these things where I always feel like I can maybe fake my way through it, but I don't sincerely understand what the subject is. I, I know that there's this protein folding problem and that it's hard and that there was a breakthrough in it and that <laughs> there was a lot of excitement about that. But like, what is it? Like, why, why is this so hard? Like, what is the what is the nature of the issue? OK, so 
trying to think of a good, so you've got the, the DNA, right? And it's just A, C, T, G, whatever, some sort of string. And with proteins, I think you've got other sets of instructions. And then you, you, you can figure out, okay, if we have this gene, it encodes for this series of amino acids, which are like little protein blocks. And you would think that would be the whole problem. Okay, now we know all of the amino acids, we know how they line up. But actually, uh, the way that the amino acids will glob together into protein it's kind of like, okay, you know, if you fold a piece of paper, there's like a million ways, like you crumple it in your hand. There's like a million ways it can crumple in your hand because every little ridge of it can crumple in like a hundred different ways. And for amino acids, for every sequence, there is a specific way it will crumple, but it's very, very hard to look at it and just guess what is the way it will crumple because it involves the interactions of like, 200 different things that all have electrons that are all pulling on each other in different ways. So you look at that sequence and then when top researchers or before DeepMind top programs tried to guess how will it crumple, they were usually wildly off. Uh, and what DeepMind did was they threw AI at this. They threw a lot more resources at this and they can, with reasonable reliability, predict how it will crumple. Uh, and this is really important because how it crumples determines which bits of it are on the outside, which means which bits of it you can maybe bind to uh, with receptors or things like that. And it predicts like which pieces of it are going to be the most functional ones versus which ones are kind of buried and, and not going to affect its overall function. So you've got to figure this out. There's, you know, if you do a combinatorics approach, there's, you know, trillions and trillions of possibilities. Uh, and AI is reasonably good now at saying, oh, it'll crumple like this. And so, and so, right. So it's basically, it's like the, the physical shape of the proteins is critical to what they actually do. Exactly. And this is a not as funny as uh, some of the things that, that go on with, with images, but like has a really powerful sort of real world application. And then I guess the question becomes, like, what do we do if we are concerned about this all going badly? Because uh, right now it's like, I don't know, you can have conferences or people can do takes, um, but it's really challenging to regulate like what happens on people's computers, especially because the regulators themselves are probably not going to be at the cutting edge of technology. So I think one thing working for us here is that nobody actually wants to build an AI system that like pursues something contrary to human values and makes everything way worse forever. Nobody wants that. So if we can develop tools that make it pretty easy to characterize what AI is doing, even when it's super intelligent, or things that make AI, you know, differentially super intelligent, like you, you can work towards parts of AI that we're really excited about and parts of AI that allow for pushing back, allow for correction, allow for keeping up with the pace of AI changes to the world and addressing destructive and destabilizing side effects. So I think from a research perspective, there's like lots of promising, making AI more understandable, making AI easier for us to like interpret and respond to work that needs to get done. From a policy side, it's hard because I know you're a policy person and I, I like know people in the government are like, we, we think AI is serious. What do we do about AI? I think there should be more focus. I think there should be a focus on getting the regulators up to speed in this field and like hiring top talent, even if that means you have to pay a lot of money for it so that you have people thinking about AI who really deeply get AI and understand recent developments. But I don't think the US should try something like a massive ban on this technology. It can fund 
promising research. It can actively try to discourage research that's just aiming at AGI without a clear plan for interpretability, understandability. But a lot of that, in order for it to go right, the people making the rules have to really get it. And right now, I don't, there are very few people who really get it. So I, I, I think you need to start with that. You need to start with more people in government who are deeply involved in the process of making AI and get what's going on there. All right, let's take another break. Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. As a parent, you want your child to have every opportunity, but giving them the tools they need to tackle every challenge, that takes a team. Now more than ever, educational support tailored exactly to what your child needs can make all the difference. That's why parents have trusted Sylvan Learning for 45 years as the ultimate teammate in their child's educational journey instilling in them a love for learning and a passion for reaching the next level. And Sylvan's Insight Assessment can identify gaps in learning and areas that could be of concern for your child. It's a 360-degree view into your child's learning that you can't find anywhere else and helps ensure that your child didn't miss something in school that might put them at a disadvantage in the future. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. I think one of the most sort of basic sets of concerns that people have about artificial intelligence and have had along is about sort of impact on on the labor market and on, you know, displacing people from jobs, uh, you know, like the text generating AIs uh, that exist now, they, they could not do my job, but they're pretty good mm-hmm. and they're way better than their precursors were a very, very, very short time ago. And it's like not that hard for me to imagine um, just being able to write up news stories, you know, like really soon if you could create the right inputs and things like that. And, you know, I mean, I don't know, like most people, I don't want to be out of work. I don't want to see my my, my yeah. specialized skills thrown away. Uh, Eric, our producer, he was telling me about some possible new AI audio editing uh, tools that people are trying to debut, and like it, it, it all seems kind of kind of alarming. It would be great to cure cancer, uh, but not to just like replace everything that everyone does. Yeah, and I think this is again a thing about pace. Like AI is going to change a lot of how the world works. And if it's doing that gradually, then you know we can adapt and maybe figure out like a a way for that transition to end up being good for humans. Almost every previous technological advance hasn't led to mass unemployment. It's led to like, you know people finding new things to do in a higher productivity society. And certainly I want AI to work that way too. I want, or maybe I want mass unemployment because we have ended scarcity and can all spend our time however we want. But, you know, I don't want mass unemployment in the kind of society we have now, certainly. And I think if things are slow enough, we have lots of mechanisms, you know, democratic and commercial and so forth to sort of make things mostly good. And the problem is if things happen too fast, 
to sort of make things mostly good. And so if AI is happening too fast, then I don't think we have any good mechanisms to make things mostly good, aside from AI alignment research, which is very much in its infancy and the people doing it are not totally sure it will solve its problems. But at least like, I think we should be funding more of it. And I certainly hope it does. But so that's what I wonder, right? I mean, you know, we've talked a couple of times about sort of problems with trying to do like hard bans on, on AI development, mm-hmm. but it, it just sounds from a lot of the sort of tour of issues here. Like if there was some way to throw sand in the gears and slow things down, that that might be good, which is contrary to how I normally think, right? Like it seems like there's a lot of areas where if we could make progress happen more quickly, like that would be really good. But that's because I'm always assuming, you know, if we're talking about developing a vaccine in a month rather than a year, mm-hmm. it's still like on a time frame that human beings can comprehend versus you're talking about, well, you know, you, you you don't, I guess, want to have progress that's at such a runaway pace that like we can't even see what's happening or consider a response to it. Yeah. And I, I struggle with this because I'm very much a, a techno-optimist. I'm very much a person who will lecture everybody about how economic growth is the best thing that has ever happened for people. I do believe that. And I, I do believe in the potential of AI to continue that story instead of just tragically ending it. But to be honest with you, if I could throw sand in the gears, I would. Uh, if things were happening slower, I think it would have a better chance of going well for humans. I think that we need the mechanisms for making things good to be faster than the mechanisms for making things powerful. And right now they're not. And you used the phrase AI alignment earlier. Mm -hmm. Um, What what does that mean? What do people need to know? So AI alignment is research into how to build AIs that pursue their goals and communicate about their goals and improve themselves or whatever else AIs might, might do in a way that is compatible with human flourishing and like promotes the goals of people. That's very broad. Uh, A lot of AI research is specifically about understanding the exact capabilities of existing systems, which is a surprisingly hard problem, right? You develop like GPT-3 is an AI that produces text. It can write, you know, okay news articles. It can write okay product reviews. Uh, And it can do math sometimes if it's prompted the right way, but not if it's prompted other ways. And a lot of AI alignment research is like, what are actually GPT-3's capabilities? Because all it does is it generates text that it thinks is the appropriate response to what you just asked it. And that makes it hard to figure out what does it actually know? Does it know something if it can provide that as a response sometimes? So a lot of AI alignment research is about understanding what AIs know and understanding what their capabilities are. Uh, And then a lot of it is about getting AIs to report to us on their capabilities and their uncertainties. And then a lot of AI alignment research is about trying to build humble AIs, um, like AIs that believe that we know more than them about our ultimate goals and priorities, and therefore that they should be motivated to cooperate with us and explain things to us and do things at our pace because they believe that we no more than them, which is a hard thing to make an AI believe, especially if you think that eventually we're going to try and build this into an AI that is much, much smarter than us. But those are all things that fall under AI alignment research. What what does that mean, smarter than us? Okay, yeah, that's a very fair question. Intelligence is lots of things. But if you think about intelligence as like overall capacity to like look at the world, make inferences, and then form plans that work, uh, then like clearly 
people are smarter than animals. When we look at the world, we figure out more about the world than the animals do, and our plans in the world work better. And you could similarly imagine something that like looking at the world makes better inferences than us. It figures out more about what's going on and its plans work better than ours. And I think that's like the useful definition of superintelligence, like things that can understand more by looking at the world and things whose plans work better than ours. So, I mean, I feel like in a sort of domain specific way, that's easy for me to understand, right? Yeah. Like that, you know, right now there are self-driving cars and that technology exists, but also there are people driving cars around. Mm-hmm. Um, there are also a lot of car accidents. And like theoretically, you could make cars that drive themselves without those accidents. Um, those would be super intelligent car drivers compared to human car drivers. Right. Sure. And that would be great, uh, but it doesn't exist. But at the same time, like my computer can multiply high numbers much faster than I can. So I'm like, I'm better at driving than my computer, but I'm worse at multiplying. Sure. Um, But like, is this really a totally generalized? So I think it's kind of a generalized thing. Like, I think that compared to my four-year-old, I am better at making inferences across a really wide range of areas. And I'm better at forming plans that actually work across a really wide range of areas. And if you take my four-year-old versus a cat, my four-year-old is better at forming inferences and better at making plans. And like the cat is better at some things. The cat is like better at walking on fences and the cat is better at like falling and landing on its feet. But I still feel like there is a meaningful sense in which I can say, okay, but the kid is smarter than the cat and I'm smarter than the kid. Uh, For now, he can beat me at chess. So so we'll see how long this lasts, right? But she can beat me at chess. And yet I think it still makes sense to say, you know, I can form a lot more, more of a picture of the world from reading about it just through additional experience. And my plans tend to go better um, because I don't like burst open ice packs and then eat the interiors like she did yesterday. So I think there is a general capacity here. I think obviously there are narrow versions of it and we might want to build narrow versions of it. Like it might be that the smart thing to do is to only build narrow AIs, only build AIs that are super intelligent at drug invention and not super intelligent at anything else. If you could do that, that would be cool. But I do think that it makes sense to talk about a sort of general capacity where you look at stock market data and you do better than anyone else at predicting how the stock market will do. And also you look at a presidential debate and you do better than anyone else at predicting which candidate will be more popular. And also you look at a marketing campaign, you do better than everyone else at predicting how that marketing campaign will persuade potential producers of your product. You can imagine a capacity that helps you with all of those things. Mm -hmm. And I mean, yeah, I mean, it's it's interesting. I I think a lot of people are resistant, uh, not just in like the 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 artificial intelligence case, um, but in the general case uh, to to the idea that sort of general competencies exist. Um, even though I mean, I think we do see it clearly with children, right, mm-hmm. who are adorable in a lot of ways. Almost any kind of task, like a six year old will outperform a four year old. Yes. Ah. Right. Like there's no. Yes. They are better at looking at the world and making plans that work. Right. And, you know, I, I understand that there's a lot of reluctance, you know, given the history of sort of intelligence in like various awful social engineering programs. I understand that there's some hesitation there, but six year olds are better at making plans than four year olds and grown ups are better at making plans than six year olds. Like those are just facts about the world. Right. Like we've got to be able to talk about general capacity to make plans for anything to make sense. Okay, so let's say, you know, somebody listens to this podcast, uh, they're convinced, they're more concerned about AI risk 
they're adding it to their list along with pandemics and whatever else. Like what, what should they do? Right. I mean, the, the other good, like we, we were talking about malaria and nets. Right. And the great thing about that is like, you know, you could just like write a check to the net people. Vaccine research is hard, but like lots of people have researched lots of vaccines. There are existing funding streams for that. There are ways to distribute vaccines to people. Um, so, you know, you can, you can call your congressman and tell them they should put more money into the global fund or, you know, whatever else. Like yeah, what, yeah. what, what should we do? Yeah. So I think if you work in AI, that's easy. You know, Paul Cristiano, Dario Amade do great AI alignment type work. You should get familiar with what they're doing and then see where, you know, if you're an AI researcher, where you want to build on it. But like most of us aren't AI researchers. And in some ways, it's like vaccine research where some people are going to be specialists and figure out how to do it. Uh, and then everybody else can mostly help by like, you know, having a good enough understanding of the area that the government is incentivized to have a good understanding of the area and to pursue policies that are good. Like a lot of our problem with vaccines right now, you've written about how there's not a lot of demand among people for better vaccine policies. We don't have better vaccine policy. And I think there's probably something similar going on with AI, right? We don't have a lot of demand for better AI policy. So we only have good AI policy to the extent like the Defense Department considers it a national security issue. And they take it really seriously, but I don't want all this work to happen in the Defense Department. I think that creates its own problems. So, you know, what more people can do is like look up candidates, AI platforms, ask those candidates, like, what do you see as the role of the government in AI alignment work? Create an environment where people feel like they need to understand AI, you know, well enough to answer intelligent questions. And maybe that environment hires smarter people at the decision making levers. Maybe it doesn't. I don't know. I I think policy is definitely a hard lever for something like this. But I think it's not just policy, right? It's like, Maybe this is naive, but I I feel like it's pretty easy to understand from a distance, like who are the people working on developing vaccines versus who are the people making things worse, right? Like what's what's (laughs) weird about the AI field to me is that like, obviously nobody's going to say, oh, I'm doing reckless research, right? Like people, people believe that what they're doing is helpful or if not they'll lie about it and since it's like the cure for ai research is more ai research it's hard to tell who's doing good yeah it's it's, it's hard for me to even tell whose side i'm on right like what like like what like what am i saying here yeah, no, I think that's really a really big problem. Even among people who take alignment really seriously and agree that we need to solve it, some of them think that others of them are, are being too reckless and pushing forward a little too fast. So there's no anywhere a list of people who are doing a good job. And then there's the fact that I think AI alignment research, which is a very specific thing about this fast-paced future technology and how to make it do good things, gets sort of combined in a lot of people's minds with like ethics of AI research, which is more about like, should we help the Chinese government build surveillance systems it should it can use to do genocide? We should not do that, but it's not really an AI alignment issue. It's just like a basic ethics issue that the AI component isn't really very important. And then like algorithmic bias issues, which are fascinating and like their whole own topic of discussion. But, you know, because we fed it a bunch of racist data, this criminal justice system is racist, is like, again, a 
pretty different category of issue from aligning future superintelligence systems. And so a lot of places will say, oh, we're doing AI safety research. They're like, oh, tell me about your AI safety research. And they're doing great work on algorithmic bias or on, you know, not selling China tools it can use to do genocides. And I'm, I'm glad they're doing that, but it doesn't make it hard to figure out who's doing alignment research. Right. I mean, because again, I mean, these are sort of um, finite scale problems, right? Like, you know, you you might not want to sell the Chinese government paper, right? That they're that they're using in concentration camps, right? I mean, a- any like horrific human rights abuse is made up of a bunch of stuff. Right. And like for general reasons, like you you might want to sanction entities that are doing that. You don't want to be complicit. You don't want to have uh, slave labor in your supply chains for your companies. And like AI could be part of that story, but just in the way that anything else would be. Exactly. It's nothing specific to AI. And I think a lot of attention ends up there because it's more specific, it's more concrete, it's more bounded. It's easy to say, oh yeah, we specifically took these measures to ensure we weren't complicit in any human rights abuses. We're done now. We're not complicit in any human rights abuses. Whereas with alignment research, there's sort of an endless, like, are we making progress on alignment? Are we making progress on alignment faster than we're making progress on capabilities? Because a lot of great research organizations, I felt like the answer is, yeah, you're making progress on alignment. You're making faster progress on capabilities. It's much harder. And so I think it's easy to sort of try and solve a different problem. Right. Well, especially because, right, I mean, we were talking about good guys and bad guys, right? And it's, I don't want to say easy, but relatively easy to say that, like, okay, like the the the, the PRC government, that they that they are bad guys. Right. And so then, okay, you don't want to help them. Right. But that's different from is the research program beneficial or not. Right. Or or just neutral. And, and that's like the more challenging issue. Right. Is like what kind what what avenues of research are actually helpful. Yeah. And I think I can answer that in terms of specific avenues of research. I can say, I think research into measuring the capabilities of our systems, research into making our systems report out what they're doing more carefully, research into understanding our systems, that's good. But like most labs do some of that and some capabilities research. And many researchers are doing both. And a lot of researchers who do care about alignment feel that some of the capabilities research is necessary in order to have the kind of systems they can, like, okay, GPT-3, the the text AI we've been talking about, that is capabilities research. It is an AI that has new capabilities. But we've also learned a ton from it that people are applying to their alignment work. So, (laughs) I mean, but see, this all reminds me a little bit of the, like, what we had to make the super virus in order to understand how to prevent pandemics. Yeah. And as I say that, I'm like, oh man, in biosecurity, I have no sympathy for that. And I'm like, stop building the super virus. And maybe in AI, stop building smart AIs. But there's definitely a lot of awareness that if you don't build the smart AI, somebody else will build the smart AI. And there's also just, you know, the people working on this stuff love making their AI smarter and seeing what they can do. But I mean, some somebody at the Wuhan Institute of Virology was saying, well, if we don't mutate the bad virus, they're going to do it in 4D trick. So- <laughs> yes. And at some point, you can't let that be an excuse, right? Like you just shouldn't do things that run the potential to make the world vastly worse, even if you think that your your ideological opponents are doing it or whatever. But 
that's a very hard call to make. And it's very specific to an individual situation. I don't know. I'm against gain of function research in biology. I guess to be consistent, I should probably also be against it in AI. Uh, but it's definitely something I struggle with. You know, I, so, so something that I do think, right, is that this is a subspecies of the general issue that intense zero-sum international competition leads to dangerous policy choices, mm-hmm. right? That like when everybody gets into, if we don't do it, the Chinese will mode about everything. It, it's not even necessarily that that's wrong as an analysis of the situation, but like you, you're out of good options mm-hmm. once that's what you're telling yourself, whether it's about bioweapons or AI or nuclear weapons, you know, anything else, right? That like, it's important, I think, to actually try to have at least the possibility of international cooperation on big issues, because otherwise, the the logic of better here than there can can take you really far. Yeah. And I think, you know, with nuclear weapons, we we were certainly in a situation where it was better for us to build them than any of the people we were at war with. But it would have been better for the world if we had somehow stayed out of a situation where we we, we ended up having a nuclear arms program during a world war. And definitely, if there's anything I could do to sort of cool international tensions, I think that would help with AI. But, you know, cool international tensions isn't exactly a thing where you can point to the people who are doing that. So. Yes, it's hard. <laughs> All right. Well, we will, um, I don't know, have to think think more about it. Hopefully somebody out there listening has some better ideas uh, for policy going forward. I know that's a lot of the audience here in the show. Uh, I do try to try to bring ideas to the people. Um, so thank you so much, Kelsey. Thanks as always to our sponsors, our producer, Eric Janakis, and these will be back on Tuesday.